Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to ask everybody to keep your eyes and ears open as we get deeper into 2023. If you have questions, email us, podcast at lincolnproject.us. We want to hear what you're hearing. We want to see what you're seeing. We want to know what you're wondering about. Podcast at lincolnproject.us. Give us your questions, your thoughts, your concerns, and anything you think might be of interest to the fight for American democracy. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Michael Steele, former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, former Chairman of the Republican National Committee, host of The Michael Steele Podcast, available wherever fine podcasts are found, and a political analyst for MSNBC. Michael, welcome back. Hey, good to be with you, Reed. What's happening? Well, you tell me. I want to know, how does Michael Steele see the world? It's a small question, so take your time. It's a small question, and a world is getting smaller and smaller by the day. We are at an inflection point, I think, Reed, that we've not really either anticipate and certainly I don't think fully appreciate in terms of the dynamics of how our politics in the country are whipsawing everything from the practice of our faith to the expression of what a family looks like to our understanding of our relationships globally. And at the core of all of that is a rot that is so profound, in my view, and so deep that the question of how we get on the other side of this becomes harder and harder every day in many respects. And I, you know, I hate to start off the conversation on such a downer, but I think it's important for us to be real about what it is we're confronting right now as we listen to a former president of the United States declare his absolute affection and admiration for authoritarian assholes. Well, they're good looking, Michael. So that's, he likes them when they're good looking. He likes them when they're good looking. You know, they look very, very good. Look very, very good. And you've got a political leadership in one party, which flat out is wholly inept to do anything about it and doesn't care. And in fact, just says double down as long as the dollars keep coming in the door. And another political party that, quite frankly, don't know how to do politics. So I think right now the way I see the world is it is a challenge. And not blowing smoke and tooting horns here, but Lincoln Project warned of this in 2020, not just 2022. So, I mean, there are a handful of us out here kind of saying, time out. Do we really appreciate the landscape for what it is? Because I don't think we do. You know, what I found... In the last couple of weeks, Michael, was something happened that hadn't happened in a while and doesn't happen very often, which was even my imagination was not enough to comprehend all of the craziness that they could pack into the better part of a week. And 
there's this sort of galloping further and further down the road to insanity. And it all seems to happen at once. And, you know, you've got Trump indictment and, you know, he's on Tucker Carlson last night. So it's all happening at once, but there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it, which is they're all crazy and they happen to be crazy simultaneously, but not necessarily in coordination with one another. No, they're not in coordination with one another. And all the various pieces and players, you know, they kind of look at the other pieces and players and don't quite know what they're going to do or how that move is going to be made. So you have the whole crap that is coming out of Fox with Tucker Carlson. Now we've seen the email, the text messages. You know, I hate him passionately. Right. (laughs) But yet here's Donald Trump on his show and he's sitting there looking like, you ever see that picture of the kid of your baby, your newborn baby? Everybody who has a child knows this look. The first time they take a real poop, (laughs) that look on their face, right? that's the Tucker look. Like, what is happening? What is that I feel? What is that I hear? What is that I see? So you have that piece. Then you have Donald Trump embracing authoritarian leaders to the point where you're listening to this and the only thing that comes to your mind is get a room. And then outside of that, you've got everyone jockeying for position to challenge Trump. And then you have layered on top of all that, like a grand sauce that just sits there and just tells you just how bad this dish is. You have not one, but two mass shootings within two days of each other or or a week of each other. Then you've got Texas uh, judge, federal judge, basically nationalizing an abortion ban with his ruling, a Washington judge, federal judge saying, stay that order. Then you've got Florida with Ron DeSantis signing legislation that basically turns Florida into a war zone because now everybody can own a gun, carry it without a permit. And the party seemingly is, we're good. So just let me take a quick detour, Michael, if you would. So I just I do want to make one quick correction, because on the show yesterday, I referred to the Texas judges ruling about the morning after pill. It is not. It is mifeprestone. So I just want to make sure that I corrected that. I got that wrong. And as you know, Michael, if you're going to wear the white hat and you're going to tell the truth, let's make sure we get our facts straight. So I do want to apologize for that mistake. And Michael, thanks for your forbearance and let me clean that up. No, no, that's important because, look, Regardless of where we are positioned on the spectrum of for or against abortion, the reality of it is 50 years later, it is part of the mainstream of women's health. I know many, many pro-life women who've had to confront that as a situation in their life in one form or another and are very glad they had the right and the ability to do that. These individual choices are of a magnitude that, to be quite honestly, male-dominated legislatures should basically just sit down, shut up, and not engage at all, because they're the leading proponents of a lot of this stuff. The other side of it is, how do we now move forward and fix what is happening in front of us? And this goes, I think, Reed, to the heart of what 
you and I have been in the battle over and trying to do for many years, and that's get voters to vote, to get them to participate, to fully take on their obligation to create for themselves the kind of government that actually best represents their interest, recognizing that we're all not going to agree. So therefore, that means hmm, we're going to need leaders who can fix that, who can negotiate that and can work that out for us. But we also know, though, that the predicate of that, the foundation of that, though, is that you have to be having a common argument or a common discussion. There has to be an idiom in which we're all speaking. And as Ann Applebaum and Tim Snyder have so eloquently laid out in their various writings, that this is one of the keys to authoritarian movements is they change the conversation. So we see we live in a post-truth world, right? You were talking about Trump's interview with Tucker Carlson, which we should note at its very base is Tucker Carlson bending the knee to Donald Trump, right? Like that is him saying, okay, you're in charge. I'm sorry, right? Even if he never said it out loud. If not outright bending over. I mean, <laughs> look, if I say I hate you with a passion, there is not too many universes in which you and I are going to be sitting across from each other having an amiable conversation. I can't think of one. But, you know, that's the thing, though. And I think this goes back to the party, right, which is for Fox, right, and their case with Dominion, I think, is going to go to trial here very soon, Michael, and it'll all be out in the open, is they're chasing their viewers. Their viewers are Trump people. Their viewers are MAGA. Carlson had to have him on that show to show fealty, to bend the knee, literally and figuratively. And I think that's what you see here, too, which is there's Trump out there. But even think about this. And when I say this, don't email, don't send angry texts, right? I'm saying this with a relative lens on this, which is when Donald Trump is saying, hey, guys, we went too far on abortion, right? This is killing us. When Donald Trump is saying you shouldn't touch Social Security and Medicare, right? And the rest of them are running headlong into those propellers. You know, I don't even know what the word is for that. But I think that one thing we are saying, Michael, is that there seems to be less and less Americans interested in that. But because of gerrymandering and so many other things, these Republicans in a lot of these states, especially the former Confederacy, bound and determined not to be the former Confederacy, but maybe the new one, they're going to do what they're going to do because now they are controlled by primary voters, activists, even donors, right? I don't give the donor class, even if they're very wealthy, Michael, I don't give the donor class a pass on this. No, I don't either. I think a lot of the things that they don't like about Trump or Green or any of these other goons is not substantive, it's aesthetic. They just don't like the crazy. They're messy. And major donors don't like messy. They never have. They don't want to feel compelled to have to respond because they wrote a check for $2 million to your PAC, right? Even if your PAC is not putting out any identifiable information, this is Washington, D.C. We know who you're writing checks to. And so the reality of it is they don't like the mess more than anything else. To your earlier point about the sort of the South rising again or trying to reestablish itself, I give you Tennessee and what Republican legislators did in Tennessee in ousting Democratic Representative Justin Pearson and Democratic Representative Justin Jones while sparing Democratic Representative Johnson, white female, 60-year-old woman. Who even said, there's only one reason why they didn't kick me out. Right, right. Who says, well, it's because I'm a 60-year-old white woman. That's why they didn't kick me out. Can I ask you personally, when you saw that go down last week, like, what did you think? 
when I saw that go down, that to me was these white boys were telling these two black men, don't get uppity. Y'all just being uppity right now. We're going to put you in your place. Right. I mean, the only thing they were missing was the boss hog outfit. All they were missing were the boss hog outfit and probably some other tools to impress upon these young men that they meant business. The reality of it was that I get the whole idea of the quorum in the chamber and all of that. And so the worst that should have come out of this is a censure by the body, the absolute worst, not an expulsion. And so when you have three individuals who are doing the same thing, making the same disruption, and the only difference is two of them have a bullhorn and the third does not, oh, that's the hook you're going to hang your hat on to keep the white woman from being expelled is, oh, well, she didn't use a bullhorn in the chamber. That's your go-to? It just reeked of racism and trying to make sure these young men knew who was in control here and that they weren't, irrespective of the fact that they were elected by their constituents to represent them, which constituents have now sent them back through the representative body in the county, and they're going to run a special election. What I thought was interesting, though, Reed, was the word on Tuesday before Jones, Representative Jones was reinstalled, or was that Monday? Maybe Monday, was, oh, they may not seat them. They may not reseat them. And the Speaker of the House quickly comes out and says, oh, no, we'll absolutely speak. The, you know, they've learned their lesson. Well, and also remember that he's worried now because it turns out he doesn't live in his district. So he's got a rear guard action he's got to fight, right? Yeah, because guess what? Different set of rules. Right. I mean, this is where I guess maybe it's chaos for its own sake, Michael. Maybe the insanity is the point. Maybe it's the owning the libs, right? It might very well be that the owning the libs is the goal here. I mean, for you and me, like the goal in politics, you know, the initial piece is to win an election so that you can make policy and govern and everything else. But for these guys, there doesn't seem to be any, well, certainly rationality has been out the window for years. But what that legislative body did, aside from the blatant racism, was also just political malpractice. You have made these two young men heroes. You threw them out for a week. They're both now reinstalled. Now they both get the opportunity to run probably unopposed in special elections and get held up as heroes again. And you're all going to look like a bunch of goons, which you are. And they're going to have not only literal bullhorns, but every decent person in the state of Tennessee and beyond, you know, sending them money, giving them kudos, doing whatever they can to make sure that these guys are reelected with 95% of the vote. Not only that, but then on the back end of that narrative, because one of the interesting things that you and I are probably more familiar with than a lot of folks who just casually look at politics is. Tennessee was one of those Southern states that was in a trend line that was very much akin to North Carolina and very much akin to Virginia. And but for in the last cycle, the heavy handed redistricting, because the Republicans saw where the trend lines were going to sort of create these districts to the point, Reed, that in one county, what did they do? They slashed the number of representatives in the county because it was just becoming too many Democrats. Too many Black folks were running for office and winning. So you can see the, the reaction in the first instance to the changing demographics that 
were projected to come. And now the question becomes, how does this play across the state? I think you're right. Those sober minds are going to look at this when one of those, or not both, decide to run for Congress or run for the U.S. Senate or run for a statewide office in the near future. That really makes this much more problematic. It becomes Georgia, in many respects, for the Republican Party, where you once were in a pretty good position, heavy-handed actions taken by the president, taken by public officials leading up to an election, creates an ongoing narrative that changes the way the body politic begins to look at the characters in the play, if you will. So these two guys, totally obscure, unknown to the rest of the world, to your point, now have not just a platform in the state, but nationally to reinforce that statewide platform that makes it harder for the GOP going forward because every little thing they do, every little step they take, every little move they make, to quote a song that we're familiar (laughs) with, everybody's watching them. Right. So to your point, in a lot of Republican-controlled states, they're using redistricting and legislative control and control of the governor's office to change rules, right, within the democratic process, right? So they can say, well, it's legal. But let's make an assumption. I'm going to make an assumption, Michael, that we believe that Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party. And the Republican Party is scaring the hell out of soft Republicans, independents. They are nominating crazy candidates, which they did last year. And I think they'll do again this coming year, regardless of whatever team McConnell thinks about their Senate nominees. You've run for office, but you also, you know, as chairman of the RNC, were in charge of an electoral strategy in 2010. Where does Trump find the votes to win in target states? I'm not saying he can't. I'm not whistling past any graveyards here, but if you're sitting down there and you're Susie Wiles and Chris LaCivita, right, his two top strategic people who are very smart, don't get me wrong, what's their path to victory? Because it seems to me that a lot of the people they desperately need have demonstrated twice now in 20 and 22 that these are folks who left the island and don't really seem to want to come back. So you have to, in one instance, separate 20 and 22 meaning the presidential from the congressional, the lack of momentum in the congressional space that would otherwise have led to a red wave wasn't there because Trump was not present. Trump was there in 20. And what I try to tell people, when you're looking strategically at this upcoming presidential race, you have to keep in mind a number of things and you cannot cannot take them for granted and assume a negative from them. And that the first important thing to recognize is Donald Trump picked up damn near 8 million more votes between 2016 and 2020. On the heels of everything else that we know, it would not surprise me if Donald Trump continued to pick up votes going into 2024. So I don't trust an electorate that I have not fully engaged with for some period of time to fully begin to understand what they're thinking, how they're seeing the election. And so right now, this is a jump ball in 2024. And Joe Biden, nominee for the Democrats or not, I just don't trust the electorate enough at this point to say people see Trump as such an anathema that they won't turn out and vote for him 
or if they otherwise decide not to turn out, they just stay home and vote down ballot. I just don't buy that scenario right now. I'm looking at this from a negative position, meaning that the Biden administration, that Joe Biden and democracy-oriented candidates are behind and have to make and remake again the case to the American people that this ilk is not the best course for them. These individuals, whether it's the Marjorie Taylor Greens or the Bulberts who will be on the ballot, who should damn outright lose in her state since she barely won this time. But again, she barely won in 2022. She won is the bottom line, right? Despite everything else. So I'm a little bit more cautious about these things. There's a reason why, and you know this, my friend, you and the team at the Lincoln Project, whether it's online or in person at events that you're doing around the country, people come up to you and ask you, are you guys going to engage again in 2024? Are we going to see the Lincoln Project back at the table? In and you know why they ask that? Because they're reflecting that same concern that I just articulated. They have this inherent fear that the complacency is such in the body politic that you'll have enough of a significant number of voters who will say, well, Donald Trump is not going to win again. I mean, they didn't elect him the last time and don't see the reason or get the connection to why this election is more important than the last. And we're going to be in this push in this cycle for a while where the next election is going to be more important than this one because of the anti-democratic forces that have taken control of election boards, the party in the, on the Republican side, the apparatus within that party, the county level, state level, et cetera. Right. So you were talking about President Biden and the Democrats, and that was one thing I did want to ask you is, what advice would you have for them? And before you answer, Democrats do things as you can imagine, and you know, we, we are probably far friendlier with a lot of Democrats than we ever were in our lives, that boggle the mind. Sometimes you say, I can't believe we ever lost to you. And I say that with all the love in the world. But I just use it as example, was it earlier this week or late last week, Michael, a story out of one of the D.C. outlets that moderate Democrats in the U.S. House were telling President Biden that he needed to come to the table and negotiate with Kevin McCarthy on the debt ceiling. Now, if there's one thing that we've learned, and I think it was Napoleon who said, when your opponent is defeating themselves, don't get in his way. And McCarthy had the only friend he had in that capital is his gavel, right? Like he doesn't even have a dog that wants to hang out with him. And moderate Democrats in the House throw him a lifeline. Like, what is the theory there? But more broadly, what advice would you, for our so many Democratic friends listening, what, what advice would you give to them? You've got approximately 45 to 60 days to learn how to do politics. Otherwise, just check out because you ain't ready for the game that's in front of you. They're not ready for the game in front of them. When I read those stories, I just sat there and I went, so you're telling the man who negotiated live on television, negotiated Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid off the table. <laughs> on the fly. On the fly, right? Establishing his imprimatur as the goat in this conversation. You're telling him he's got to go to the guy 
who's effectively handed his gavel to a whacked out congresswoman from Georgia who's running around and putting her imprimatur on everything as the titular head of the party until Trump comes back and takes it all over. You're telling him that he's got to go negotiate with McCarthy. Let me put it to you this way, Democrats. Joe Biden can get up tomorrow morning and take a lawn chair and go to the Rose Garden and sit his ass there until the cows come home and he wins against that. So the idea you're telling him that he's got to go across the street and cut a deal with the other team that said to you, we're not cutting a deal on anything. Okay, I'm in my lawn chair. You know where I am. When you're ready, you come to me. Part one. Part two, then the communications arm has to make sure it's ready when they don't come across the street to visit Joe in his lawn chair. They've got to be ready to, bam, every 20 minutes. A new tweet, a new headline. Y'all, the market is crashing right now, not because of Joe Biden, because of these fools over here who told us a year ago they weren't going to negotiate. Learn how to do the politics. Michael, as someone who not only, you know, you're on TV a lot, you're here with me, uh, both in audio and on video, you're an insider, to say the least. You're the only person I call that where it's not a pejorative. Tell me the psychosis. Tell me the psychological defect of folks inside the Beltway where when they say these things, when Green says these things, when Jordan says these things, when even McCarthy says these things, and nobody believes him. No one who rides in a cell train from Washington, D.C. to New York and back ever believes it. And then it comes true, and they just all sit there going, I can't believe that really happened. It's funny you should ask that question, because I, I was having this conversation last night and was asked a very similar question about what is it with Democrats that they don't get the opposition? And a lot of it has to do with the way they approach the problem. They actually want to solve it. And I'm down with that. I'm all good. Yes, in the end, we want to solve the problem. But here's the rub. You got to do a little politics first. You got to clear the runway to solve the problem. You got to get the bullshit and the obstacles out of the way to solve the problem. You got to deal with the obstructionists to solve the problem. In other words, you've got to do the politics that's required to put you in the best position to solve the problem. What happens is they become frustrated by the obstacles, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Kevin McCarthy's and the others standing there, you know, bloviating and firing off subpoenas and filing lawsuits and doing all other kinds and ignoring subpoenas and all this other stuff. Meanwhile, they're saying, well, we just want to talk to you about the best policy for your healthcare, the best policy for energy. And the country's like, well, okay, I'm good with that. But are you going to do something about the fact that they just crapped all over your shoes? <laughs> are you going to do anything about the fact that they just called your mama out? And they're not ready for that level of engagement. Republicans, on the other hand, dead wrong, as the day is long, will get up in your face and claim they're right. That's the difference, is that they're going to sit there and they're going, no, nah, no, nah, we're right. 
We're right. Well, wait a minute. No, the sky is actually blue. Now, right now, we see the sky is a, is a hue that yeah, is maybe a little pinkish. And everybody, after a while, because there is no counter narrative to that, begins to think, well, you know, the sky does look a little bit pinkish over there. And it's how they eat away at the storyline. And the Democrats have never figured out how to block and tackle to prevent that eating away at the storyline from happening. They spent, read the first two years of this administration fighting over something that people didn't give a crap about. I mean, filibuster rules? Really? Meanwhile, the economy is reeling headlong into inflation and gas prices going up. And you're sitting here talking about what? And so that disconnect is what I think has animated a lot of voters to say one of two things. These Democrats don't have a clue what they're doing. and I just don't trust them. So I'm not even going to play. I'm just checking out. Or these Democrats don't have a clue. I'm not going to trust them. And well, at least the Republican, maybe they're not really as scary as they sound. That's how you get 7 million more votes. Right. Because of the whole like normalizing thing. And, and I think just to go back to your point about the 7 million more votes, Trump did lose the popular vote by, I think, about 7 million votes. But I think it was like, what, 180,000 votes total over three or four states? You know, this is a game of small numbers. And so you're right. You know, this is a binary deal, right? There are winners and there are losers. There's no moral victory here. As Mitch McConnell famously said, and, and there's plenty of things to dislike him about, he said, winners make policy and losers go home. If you want anything else, like to make policy, you got to win. But, you know, it's always like, Michael, you know, you've lived an interesting side because you've been an elected official and you've been a political leader. And my dad, as you know, who worked on Capitol Hill for a million years, was a campaign guy who occasionally went to the Capitol to work. And he's like, there's always a difference between the campaign guys and the people in office because the campaign guys got to go out and they're happy to do the work they got to do, right? They live for it. That's what they're around for. And the people in the official office are sort of like, oh, do you have to come here? Can we meet you someplace else where we're not likely to be seen together? But the problem is that the Democrats feel that way all the way around. They're like, oh, oh, somebody, you know, but Bill Clinton, the guy was willing to knife fight. Barack Obama might have been talking about hope and change, but Pluff and everybody else were out there knifing everybody they could find. I mean, think about what they did to Paul Ryan, right? Pushing old ladies off cliffs, right? Like these were not guys who were afraid to take the tools out of the toolbox. And I feel like if there's one thing we could tell our Democratic friends is like, nobody gets out of this clean, unfortunately. No, they don't. And I think fundamental to that point is the truth. And this is how I put it. When the Democrats let President Biden be Senator Biden, they are way ahead of the game. Because at the end of the day, that individual, that iteration of Joe Biden is the one that everyone is the most familiar with and the most comfortable with. And so they love hearing the old stories about Scranton, and they love hearing the old stories about the train to Delaware and the lessons his daddy taught him. Because in so many ways, that's what grandparents are trying to do with their grandkids. And new parents are trying to share with their children. So they identify with that. When the team that he had around him politically didn't get that about Joe Biden, and they started working the Washington way, it failed miserably. They got hung up by two of their own, Cinema and Mansion. 
And instead of calling them down to the White House and say, sit your ass down here for five minutes, because I'm going to say this, I'm going to say it once to both of you. This is how this is going to go. Then you're dismissed, right? Never happened. And so for two years, they entangled the administration in a whole bunch of mess they didn't need to be entangled in. And you watch a guy who went from 57% approval among the American people to 43, to 40, to 38, literally within six months. And that's because they put this guy in the White House bubble. And instead of letting him, I mean, we know this, I don't know how much people know. I mean, but Joe Biden wasn't making calls to Capitol Hill until like nine, 10 months into the job. I mean, seriously? And it wasn't until he was able to do that, that infrastructure got done, the inflation bill got done. All of a sudden, Mitch McConnell is at a groundbreaking with the president of the United States in his backyard, right? Right. Just sending McCarthy and those guys into orbit, right? So that, to me, is the lesson that needs to be learned here is, yeah, Joe Biden is old, but who isn't? So as long as he's able to work it, and it appears he is, because we clearly watched him do it real time. I love that moment when he said, oh, so, you know, we're done here. Medicare, Medicaid, that's off the table, right? <laughs> right. And Republicans stood up and applauded. Yes. Good job, Joe. It was a beautiful moment. Well, Michael, I want to thank you for joining me today. Before we let you go, where can our viewers today and our listeners find you online? Where can we find your podcast and when can we find you on the air? Online, I'm on Twitter at Michael Steele. Check me out over there. Also on Spotable now, which is because Lord knows what the hell Elon Musk is going to be doing with Twitter. <laughs> and so we're doing that at Michael Steele as well. The podcast is a lot of fun. You can follow the podcast at Steel underscore podcast. And certainly MSNBC is my haunt. I'm there quite a bit, which is always a lot of fun on pretty much every show every day at some point. Um, but yeah, man, it's a, a lot of fun to uh, check it out. You can track all of that and follow it at the Michael Steele Network, michaelsteelnetwork.com. Tap into all of that. So I'm all over, dude. You know me. Absolutely. And thank God we're in the fight together. Thank God for that. Yes, I'm excited about that and looking forward to the battle ahead. And I'll just leave you with the question I get all the time. So what's the Lincoln Project going to do next? <laughs> Listen, man, we do it all day, every day, right? You know, look, I, you know, I think that the difference is like a lot of folks don't want to run to the sound of the noise and like, you know, there's something wrong with us. That's what we do. But look, you know, from our perspective, it's all about you know, democracy is what we've started on. Trump is what we started on. And I think that's where we'll be. Like I said earlier in the show, we do believe he's the presumptive nominee. You know, when Nikki Haley is complaining about the fact that, like, she can't get any airtime, there's a reason for that. When Ron DeSantis has to spend his super PACs dollars building crowds because nobody wants to see him, that's the Trump eclipse. If he's got 25% of the primary vote, he's got 35 or 40% of the primary vote. And, you know, we see him, I think, in the way you see him, Michael, which is this is an existential fight. But we shouldn't forget that the MAGA folks see it as existential for them, too. They believe they are fighting for their way of life. They believe that this is it. This will be the battle, the mother of all battles, is somebody that Donald Trump probably loved said. And so I think that, you know, from our perspective, you know, there's the big stuff, right? There's the ads, there's the making the news, and then there's the grinding it out day in and day out that doesn't make a lot of news, isn't particularly sexy. It can wear you down, but 
in many ways is the other side of the coin that's just as important. So, you know, we just stay after it. Well, I just want to say to everyone who's listening and, and paying attention, join the Calvary. Lincoln Project is the Calvary. And just know that there are folks out here who are fighting to get this right for democracy. And I'm just glad to be on the side of the angels on this one. Amen to that. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and so long as it's legal, TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Michael Steele, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.